0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Estelle Jobson. Trilby by Georges du Part Fourth, Part One. Félicité passée, qui ne peut revenir, tourment de ma pensée, que n'ayant honte pardon, perdu le souvenir. Midday had struck. The expected hamper had not turned up in the Place saint anatole des All Madame Vinard's kitchen battery was in readiness. Trilby and Madame Angèle Bois were in the studio, their sleeves turned up and ready to begin. At twelve, the Trois Angliches and the two fair Blanchisseurs sat down to lunch in a very anxious frame of mind, and finished a pâté de foie gras and two bottles of Burgundy between them. Such was their disquietude. The guests had been invited for six o'clock. Most elaborately they laid the cloth on the table they had borrowed from the Hotel de Seine, and settled who was to sit next to whom, and then unsettled it and quarrelled over it, Trilby, as was her wont in such matters, assuming an authority that did not rightly belong to her, and, of course, getting her own way in the end. And that, as the laird remarked, was her confounded Trilbiness. Two o'clock, three, four, but no hamper. Darkness had almost set in. It was simply maddening. They knelt on the divan, with their elbows on the windowsill, and watched the street lamps popping into life along the quays, and looked out through the gathering dusk for the van from the chemin de fer du Nord, and gloomily thought of the morgue, which they could still make out across the river. At length the Laird and Trilby went off in a cab to the station. A long drive, and lo, before they came back, the long-expected hamper arrived at six o'clock, and with it Durian, Vincent, Antony, Lorimer, Carnegie, Petrolico Goconase, Dodo, and L'Zuzu, the last two in uniform, as usual. And suddenly the studio, which had been so silent, dark, and dull, with Taffy and little Billy sitting hopeless and despondent round the stove, became a scene of the noisiest, busiest, and cheerfullest animation. The three big lamps were lit, and all the Chinese lanterns. The pieces of resistance and the pudding were whisked off by Trilby, Angèle, and Madame Vinard to other regions. The porter's lodge and durian studio, which had been lent for the purpose, and everyone was pressed into the preparations for the banquet. There was plenty for idle hands to do. Sausages to be fried for the turkey, stuffing made, and sauces, salads mixed, and punch, holly hung in festoons all round and about, a thousand things. Everybody was so clever and good-humoured that nobody got in anybody's way. Not even Carnegie, who was in evening dress, to the lads' delight. So they made him do the scullions' work, cleaning, rinsing, peeling, etc. The cooking of the dinner was almost better fun than the eating of it, and though there were so many cooks, not even the broth was spoiled, cock from a receipt of the lairds. It was ten o'clock before they sat down to that most memorable repast. Zuzu and Dodor, who had been the most useful and energetic of all its cooks, apparently quite forgot they were due at their respective barracks at that very moment. They had only been able to obtain la permission de dix heures. If they remembered it... The certainty that next day Zuzu would be reduced to the ranks for the fifth time, and Dodo confined to his barracks for a month, did not trouble them in the least. The waiting was as good as the cooking. The handsome, quick, authoritative Madame Vinard was in a dozen places at once, and openly prompted, rebuked, and bully-ragged her husband into a proper smartness. Pretty little Madame Angèle moved about as deftly and as quietly as a mouse which, of course, did not prevent them both from genially joining in the general conversation whenever it wandered into French. Trilby, tall, graceful, and stately, and also swift of action, though more like Juno or Diana than Hebe, devoted herself more especially to her own particular favorites, Durian, Taffy, the laird, little Billy, and Dodor and Zuzu, whom she loved, and tutoied en bon camarade, as she served them with all there was of the choicest. The two little vinaurs did their little best, they scrupulously respected the mince-pies, and only broke two bottles of oil and one of Harvey sauce, which made their mother furious. To console them, the laird took one of them on each knee, and gave them of his share of plum pudding, and many other unaccustomed good things, so bad for their little French tum-tums. The genteel Carnegie had never been at such a queer scene in his life. It opened his mind, and Dodo and Zuzu, between whom he sat the laird thought it would do him good to sit between a private soldier and a humble corporal, taught him more French than he had learned during the three months he had spent in Paris. It was a speciality of theirs. It was more colloquial than what is generally used in diplomatic circles, and stuck longer in the memory, but it hasn't interfered with his preferment in the church. He quite unbent. He was the first to volunteer a song, without being asked, when the pipes and cigars were lit and after the usual toasts had been drunk her majesty's health tennyson thackeray and dickens and john leech he sang with a very cracked and rather hiccupy voice his only song it seems an english one of which the burden he explained was french vive le vive le vive le vie vive le compagnie and Zuzu and Dodo complimented him so profusely on his French accent that he was with difficulty prevented from singing it all over again. Then everybody sang in rotation. The Laird, with a capital baritone, sang Hey, Diddle Dee, for the Lowlands Low, which was encored. Little Billy sang Little Billy. Vincent sang Old Joe kicking up behind and afore," and the Yalla-Galla kicking up behind Old Joe. A capital song with words of quite a masterly scansion. Anthony sang Le Cire de Framboisie, enthusiastic encore. Lorimer, inspired no doubt by the occasion, sang the Hallelujah Chorus and accompanied himself on the piano, but failed to obtain an encore. Durian sang Plaisir d'amour ne dure qu'un moment, chagrin d'amour dure toute la vie. It was his favourite song and is one of the beautiful songs of the world, and he sang it very well, and it became popular in the Quartier Latin ever after. The Greek couldn't sing, and very wisely didn't. Zuzu sang capitally a capital song, in praise of Le Vin Katsu. Taffy, in a voice like a high wind, and with a very good imitation of the Yorkshire brogue, sang a Somersetshire hunting-ditty, ending, Of this year's song should I be axed the reason for to show, I don't exactly know, I don't exactly know, but all my fancy dwells upon Nancy, and I sing tally-ho. It is a quite super-excellent ditty, and haunts my memory to this day, and one felt sure that Nancy was a dear and a sweet, wherever she lived and when. So Taffy was encored twice, once for her sake, once for his own. And finally, to the surprise of all, the bold dragoon sang, in English, My Sister Dear out of Masaniello, with such pathos, and in a voice so sweet and high and well in tune, that his audience felt almost weepy in the midst of their jollification, and grew quite sentimental, as Englishmen abroad are apt to do when they are rather tipsy, and hear pretty music, and think of their dear sisters across the sea, or their friends' dear sisters. Madame Vinard interrupted her Christmas dinner on the model throne to listen, and wept and wiped her eyes quite openly and remarked to Madame Boisse, who stood modestly close by, «Il est gentil tout plein, ce dragon. Mon Dieu, comme il chante bien, il est angliche aussi, il paraît. Ils sont joliment bien élevés, tous ces angliches. Tous plus gentils les uns que les autres. Et quant à Monsieur Litrabili, on lui donnerait le bon Dieu sans confession. » And Madame Boisse agreed. Then Svengali and Gecko came, and the table had to be laid and decorated anew, for it was supper time. Supper was even jollier than dinner, which had taken off the keen edge of the appetites, so that everyone talked at once. The true test of a successful supper. Except when Antony told some of his experiences of Bohemia. For instance, how, after staying at home all day for a month to avoid his creditors, he became reckless one Sunday morning and went to the Bain deligny, and jumped into a deep part by mistake, and was saved from a watery grave by a bold swimmer, who turned out to be his bootmaker, Satory. To whom he owed sixty francs, of all his duns, the one he dreaded the most, and who didn't let him go in a hurry. Whereupon Svengali remarked that he also owed sixty francs to Sartori. Mais comme je ne me baigne jamais, je n'ai rien à craindre. Whereupon there was such a laugh that Svengali felt he had scored off Antony at last, and had a prettier wit. He flattered himself that he'd got the laugh of Antony this time. And after supper Svengali and Gecko made such lovely music that everybody was sobered and athirst again, and the punch bowl, wreathed with holly and mistletoe, was placed in the middle of the table, and clean glasses set all round it. Then Dodo and Zuzu stood up to dance with Trilby and Madame Angèle, and executed a series of can-can steps, which, though they were so inimitably droll that they had each and all to be encored, were such that not one of them need have brought the blush of shame to the cheek of modesty, then the laird danced a sword dance over two tea-squares and broke them both and Taffy bearing his mighty arms to the admiring gaze of all did dumbbell exercises with little Billy for a dumbbell, and all but dropped him into the punch-bowl and tried to cut a pewter ladle in two with Dodo's sabre and sent it through the window and this made him cross so that he abused French sabres, and said they were made of worse pewter than even French ladles, and the lads sententiously opined that they managed these things better in England, and winked at little Billy. Then they played at cockfighting, with their wrists tied across their shins, and a broomstick thrust in between. Thus, manacled, you are placed opposite your antagonist, and try to upset him with your feet, and he you. It is a very good game. The cuirassiers and the zouave, playing at this, got so angry, and were so irresistibly funny a sight, that the shouts of laughter could be heard on the other side of the river, so that a sergent de ville came in and civilly requested them not to make so much noise. They were disturbing the whole quartier, he said, and there was quite a rassemblement outside so they made him tipsy, and also another policeman, who came to look after his comrade, and yet another. These guardians of the peace of Paris were trust and made to play at cock-fighting, and were still funnier than the two soldiers, and laughed louder, and made more noise than anyone else, so that Madame Wiener had to remonstrate with them, till they got too tipsy to speak, and fell fast asleep, and were laid next to each other, behind the stove. The fin de Cicler reader disgusted at the thought of such an orgy as I have been trying to describe. Must remember that it happened in the fifties when men, calling themselves gentlemen, and being called so, still wrenched off door-knockers and came back drunk from the derby, and even drank too much after-dinner before joining the ladies, as is all duly chronicled and set down in John Leech's immortal pictures of life and character out of punch. Then Monsieur and Madame Vinard and Trilby and Angel Boise bade the company good-night, Trilby being the last of them to leave. Little Billy took her to the top of the staircase, and there he said to her, Trilby, I have asked you nineteen times, and you have refused. Trilby once more, on Christmas night, for the twentieth time. Will you marry me? If not, I leave Paris tomorrow morning and never come back. I swear it on my word of honour. "'Trilby turned very pale and leaned her back against the wall "'and covered her face with her hands. "'Little Billy pulled them away. "'Answer me, Trilby.' "'God forgive me.' "'Yes,' said Trilby, and she ran downstairs weeping. "'It was now very late. "'It soon became evident that Little Billy was in extraordinarily high spirits, "'in an abnormal state of excitement. "'He challenged Svengali to spar and made his nose bleed "'and frightened him out of his sardonic wits.' He performed wonderful and quite unsuspected feats of strength. He swore eternal friendship to Dodo and Zuzu, and filled their glasses again and again, and also, in his innocence, his own, and trinqued with them many times running. They were the last to leave, except the three helpless policemen, and at about five or six in the morning, to his surprise, he found himself walking between Dodo and Zuzu by a late windy moonlight in the Rue Vieille des Trois Mauvais Ladres, now on the one side of the frozen gutter, now on the other, now in the middle of it, stopping them now and then to tell them how jolly they were and how dearly he loved them. Presently his hat flew away and went rolling and skipping and bounding up the narrow street, and they discovered that as soon as they let each other go to run after it, they all three sat down. So Dodo and little Billy remained sitting with their arms round each other's necks and their feet in the gutter, while Zuzu went after the hat on all fours and caught it, and brought it back in his mouth like a tipsy retriever. Little Billy wept for sheer love and gratitude, and called him a carriotide, in English, and laughed loudly at his own wit, which was quite thrown away on Zuzu. No man ever had such dear, dear French. No man ever was so happy. After sitting for a while in love and amity, they managed to get up on their feet again, each helping the other, and in some never-to-be-remembered way, they reached the Hotel Cornet. There they sat Little Billy on the doorstep and rang the bell, and seeing some one coming up the Place de l'Odéon, and fearing he might be a sergent de ville, they bid Little Billy a most affectionate but hasty farewell, kissing him on both cheeks in French fashion, and contrived to get themselves round the corner and out of sight. Little Billy tried to sing Zuzu's drinking song. Quoi de plus doux que les glouglous, les glouglous du vin quatre sous? The stranger came up. Fortunately it was no sergent de ville, but Ribault just back from a Christmas tree and a little family dance at his aunt's, Madame Kolb, the Alsatian banker's wife in the rue de la Chaussée d'Antin. Next morning, poor little Billy was dreadfully ill. He had passed a terrible night. His bed had heaved like the ocean with oceanic results. He had forgotten to put out his candle, but fortunately Ribaut had blown it out for him, after putting him to bed and tucking him up like a real good Samaritan. And next morning, when Madame Paul brought him a cup of tisane de chien which does not happen to mean a hair of the dog that bit him, she was kind but very severe on the dangers and disgrace of intoxication, and talked to him like a mother. If it had not been for kind Monsieur Ribot, she told him, the doorstep would have been his portion. And who could say he didn't deserve it? And then think of the danger of fire from a tipsy man all alone in a small bedroom with chintz curtains and a lighted candle." Ribaud was kind enough to blow out my candle," said Little Billy humbly. "Ah, dam," said Madame Paul with much meaning. "Au moins, il a un bon coeur, Monsieur Ribot. And the cruellest song of all was when the good-natured and incorrigibly festive ribaut came and sat by his bedside and was kind and tenderly sympathetic and got him a pick-me-up from the chemist's, unbeknown to Madame Paul. "Credieu, vous vous êtes bien amusé hier soir. Quel boss, hein? que was plus que chez ma tante all of which of course it is unnecessary to translate except perhaps the word bus, which stands for "nurse," which stands for a jolly good spree in all his innocent little life little billy had never dreamed of such humiliation as this such ignominious depths of shame and misery and remorse he did not care to live he had but one longing that trilby dear trilby kind trilby would come and pillow his head on her beautiful white English bosom, and lay her soft, cool, tender hand on his aching brow, and there let him go to sleep, and sleeping die. He slept and slept, with no better rest for his aching brow than the pillow of his bed in the Hotel Cornet, and failed to die this time, and when, after some forty-eight hours or so, he had quite slept off the fumes of that memorable Christmas debauch, he found that a sad thing had happened to him and a strange. It was as though a tarnishing breath had swept over the reminiscent mirror of his mind, and left a little film behind it, so that no past thing he wished to see therein was reflected with quite the old pristine clearness, as though the keen, quick, razor-like edge of his power to reach and re-evoke the bygone charm and glamour and essence of things had been blunted and coarsened, as though the bloom of that special joy— the gift he unconsciously had of recalling past emotions and sensations and situations, and making them actual once more by a mere effort of the will, had been brushed away. And he never recovered the full use of that most precious faculty, the boon of youth and happy childhood, and which he had once possessed, without knowing it, in such singular and exceptional completeness. He was to lose other precious faculties of his overrich and complex nature, to be pruned and clipped and thinned, that his one supreme faculty of painting might have elbow room to reach its fullest, or else you could never have seen the wood for the trees, or vice versa. Which is it? End of part one, part fourth. Recording by Estelle Jobson, Rome, Italy.